All right, Exodus chapter 17 this morning. Exodus chapter 17. Continuing our discussion here of these tests that the Lord put upon uh, the children of Israel, having delivered them from the land of Egypt, they seemed to have one test of their faith uh, after another, as God was seeking to teach them what it was to truly depend upon Him. Now, from chapter 15 to 17, we have really a very quick series uh, of little tests that God gives the people, one right after the other, uh, to teach them, I say, this significant lesson. In chapter 15, we saw the test of thirst, uh, and the Lord was faithful to them in supplying uh, the water to drink, changing the bitter water to sweet water, and then taking them to that oasis at Elam. Uh, Then in chapter 16, the test of hunger, uh, and God supplied for them the manna uh, to give them their daily bread, teaching them uh, indeed the necessity of depending upon God day by day for their daily sustenance. And what a wonderful lesson that was. All right, now we come to chapter 17 and the third of these quick succession of Uh, quizzes, tests that the Lord places upon them. Once again, the test of no water. And now, uh, if we could summarize this, the test involving uncertainty. Let's read these opening verses here. And all the congregation, the children of Israel, journeyed from the wilderness of sin after their journeys according to the commandment of the Lord. That's not an unimportant statement there. uh, That they are still following the direction of God. They are not off course Uh, They are not lost uh, from that perspective. They are following the Lord. Where they are going then is the Lord's instructions. So according to the commandment of the Lord, and pitched in Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Now you would have to think the Lord knew that. uh, That obviously uh, he brings them to this place uh, in many ways because there was no water. Uh, Here is the test. Here is the new uh, point of... Uh, examining that the Lord is going to put upon these people. But we see their response immediately at verse 2, Wherefore the people did chide with Moses, and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said unto them, Why chide ye with me? Wherefore do ye tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water. And the people murmured against Moses and said, Wherefore is this that thou hast brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? And Moses cried unto the Lord, saying, What shall I do unto this people? They be almost ready to stone me. The Lord said unto Moses, Go on before the people, and take with thee of the elders of Israel, and thy rod, wherewith thou smotest the river, take in thine hand, and go. Behold, I will stand before thee uh, there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah. Massah means tempting, testing. Meribah is the idea of the striving or the chiding. Because of the chiding of the children of Israel. Because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Alright, so again I say we see them following the instructions of the Lord. Uh, At the commandment of God, they find themselves here uh, where there is no water. 
Now, again, I say that's very easy for us to read, and we can, in the comfort uh, of wherever we are, read that uh, and not, uh, I suppose, come to grips with the full significance. Uh, but to be without water is certainly a serious, uh, a serious position. You can live, I suppose, for some degree of time without food, but uh, the time is certainly shortened if there's no water. Uh, it is essential to life. Uh, there's no survival uh, without uh, that water. Uh, and there was no water in sight. And so we can well imagine uh, the concern that uh, was being uh, very quickly voiced among the congregation. Parents concerned about their children. And I say this was no small concern. Uh, from, from our standpoint, we read this and uh, we say shame, uh, shame on Israel. Uh, don't they know what's going to happen? Well, no, they didn't know what's going to happen. That's the point. We know. We've read uh, the full seven verses here. Uh, we know what the Lord was going to do. Uh, but they were there. They saw themselves in that circumstance where uh, the necessities of life were nowhere to be seen. How are we going to survive? Uh, and again, very short memories here. Uh, they uh, forgot about the manna. Uh, that was still going on. They weren't without manna. Uh, so the Lord was still giving them, even though there was no water to be seen, the manna was still coming. That came every single day. God had not failed in providing that which he said would be the means of uh, feeding them daily. So the evidence of God's faithfulness was there. Uh, it was just a very short time before this when they saw uh, the Lord's provision of water. God had given us water before. He didn't bring us here to die of thirst. Uh, faith if you will, should have been kicking in here. Uh, here is the evidence of the Lord. Uh, here is the remembrance of what the Lord has done. But I say all of a sudden, here is this, uh, this great uh, test once again uh, and a very horrible experience. And I say it's not uh, much unlike the experiences and the tests that come our way uh, day by day. We find ourselves very often in positions where we think there's no way out. Uh, we don't know what the resolution to this or that problem is. Uh, and notwithstanding what we remember about God's faithfulness, notwithstanding uh, what we know to be true uh, concerning the uh, promise that God has given to us, uh, here is this tension again that, uh, that comes and the questioning that comes and the doubt that comes and the fear that comes uh, when we find ourselves in those places uh, of uncertainty. Uh, it's a scary place. It's a different place for us all, uh, but the uncertain places, I say, are in many instances scary places. Well, they failed the test. They chided with Moses. They begin to find fault uh, unreasonable, all right? completely unreasonable. And they had lost reason here. They weren't thinking rationally. They weren't thinking on the basis of the evidence that was clearly uh, before them. They began to chide with Moses and told Moses, give us water. Uh, and there's the folly even of that question, uh, of that question, of that command that they give to Moses. Uh, here they are, they're in the wilderness, there's no water, and they go to Moses. Now, if they would just stop and think for a moment, what in the world could Moses do to bring water? Uh, they were asking the wrong guy. Uh, they were making their appeal to the wrong person here. Moses, the leader, yes. Uh, but Moses was not, as we've learned from this text, uh, was not the one setting the... Uh, setting the route in which they were going to travel. Uh, God was giving the directions. 
Uh, there was that cloudy pillar and whatever else that was leading them day by day. They were here at the commandment of God, uh, but they go to the wrong person. Uh, they go to the wrong person to ask for relief uh, for the problem. What could Moses possibly, uh, possibly do? But there's the spirit uh, of unbelief. Uh, Moses can't do anything, and so they get more upset with Moses, and they begin. And Moses sees the threat here, uh, at verse four, it says to the Lord that these people are about, are about to stone me. They are threatening. They are threatening my life. Uh, there was panic. All right. The, the uh, there is a certain sanity that comes through faith, uh, and an insanity that comes from the disbelief. And these people had completely panicked. Uh, they were acting unrationally, unreasonably, uh, but that, uh, I say, is what typically happens in the panic uh, of the unbelief that we find ourselves so often in uh, when things are not clearly laid out before us and we don't know where things are going to end up and where things are going. Uh, those uncertain times are always panic times. At least they seem to be because of the propensity uh, of unbelief. But the Lord had a lesson. The Lord had not forsaken. Uh, and once again, we have God bringing them here on purpose uh, to teach them a most significant lesson, again, of uh, the sensibility of depending upon Him regardless of what appearances seem to be. Uh, here was this rock before them. And He instructs Moses uh, to smite the rock, uh, not where you expect water to come out, it's an unlikely place for the answer to their problem to come. Uh, but the Lord, uh, in control, the Lord is showing them here the, uh, the means by which uh, He is going to meet what their very urgent need is. That regardless of appearances, the answer was there. Uh, I, I've said often to you people and other people as well uh, that appearance and reality... Uh, are not the same thing. Uh, what appears to be and what uh, really is are two different things. Very, very often in the way God deals with us, we find ourselves apparently abandoned. We seem to be forsaken. Uh, we seem to be from all of our natural perceptions in this place where uh, there appears to be no hope or no solution. Uh, but that's not the reality because God is faithful. He's proved himself to be faithful. Uh, he has consistently demonstrated his loyalty uh, and uh, his kindness to his people. And that doesn't change. We may not see the immediate answer. We may not see uh, where the answer is going to come. Many times in unexpected places. Here's water that is going to come from a rock uh, here in the midst of the, uh, in the desert surroundings. But God always has the supply uh, for his people. So the water comes uh, from the rock. Moses is instructed by God to smite the rock, uh, and there shall come out uh, water of it that the people uh, may drink. Now there's great symbolism here. All right, there is great symbolism here. Understand that God is giving object lessons. Uh, he's certainly meeting the physical needs of the people, but uh, in so doing, a vital object lesson uh, that he is setting forth before the people. The rock, uh, the rock we know from the New Testament scriptures, we can see the full typical significance of this. Uh, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock was Christ. Uh, 
Now, Paul speaks of a rock that followed them. Uh, does not mean that there was a rolling stone behind the congregation of Israel that just kind of uh, kept up with that moving congregation. I don't take that literally as a rolling stone, although some do. If that were the case, I would not have wanted to be in the last rank, I suppose. Of the, you know. But, you know, whatever. Uh, not, not, not a literal uh, rolling stone. Uh, but Paul says the rock that followed them was Christ. The rock that followed them was Christ. Now, what's the significance of that? Uh, even already at this point, uh, the idea, the term of the stone, of the rock, was already used uh, as a messianic title, uh, as a title of deity, one of the key words for God, terms. Uh, that we're going to see uh, is uh, is the rock. You remember in this uh, patriarchal blessing uh, in Genesis chapter 49, uh, in the word that is given particularly concerning Joseph, uh, verse 24, but his bow uh, abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the uh, full interpretation of this passage, uh, but I would take that as messianic in its identification. Uh, and one of the terms uh, very early on in the patriarchal period uh, was the stone uh, of Israel. Look at the song of Moses. This is uh, obviously a bit later than the circumstance that we are looking at, but it nonetheless demonstrates that this was part of uh, the theological vocabulary uh, that Moses was putting before the people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. And this great song uh, of Moses, now at the very end of his uh, career. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as rain. My speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, the showers upon the grass. Uh, because I will publish the name of the Lord, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. Here it is. He is the rock. Uh, his work is perfect. All his ways are judgment, a God of truth, and without it, uh, iniquity, just and right is he, and on it goes. Uh, the rock. Uh, go to verse 15. But Jeshuan uh, uh, wax fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock uh, of his salvation. Uh, verse 18, uh, of the rock that begat thee, uh, thou art unmindful. Thou hast forgotten the God that formed thee. I'm saying that this very term rock uh, in this Mosaic era, and Moses was preaching to these people uh, right through this entire uh, period, obviously. This is one of the terms that he used to designate the Lord himself. Uh, the psalmist picks this up. Here is a common term in the Old Testament. Uh, that designates the Lord. So out of the rock, all right, let's get the, the symbolic lesson here, certainly. Out of the rock will come the supply for need. Out of the rock. So from the Lord, here is this picture, uh, this very visible object lesson that the solution to all of your problems, uh, the answer to the uncertainties and the difficulties of life and whatever else is going to issue from the Lord. Uh, from God Himself uh, is going to be the resolution of the problems uh, of life. Now, typically, typically, uh, 
uh, I, I certainly uh, would see this as having its prophetic fulfillment uh, in the smiting of Christ. All right, we, uh, I, I have no problem with that. Uh, but even apart, all right, I want us to see this lesson that even apart from that prophetic aspect, remember the difference that I, I make for you people uh, between what, what I call the symbol and what we call the type. Uh, the symbol is the object lesson. It is the spiritual truth that is being uh, highlighted and being taught in that contemporary setting. The type, then, is the future reference. It is the prophetic uh, application or referent that that may have uh, in the uh, overall course of Revelation. So even apart from what this says typically and prophetically of Christ the rock being smitten on the cross, uh, and, and I, I, don't, uh, I, I don't reject that, uh, and I think that is certainly suggested here. But understand the symbolic significance. Here is the very vivid lesson that was being taught to these people. Here is the rock. That's a divine title. Uh, that rock represents the Lord. Uh, it represents the Lord. And where then are the issues of life? Where are the solutions and all of the answers to my problem? They are going to come from the Lord. They flow from the Lord uh, Himself. Uh, it didn't take a great deal of spiritual acumen uh, to understand and to get the picture. Uh, this was a uh, divinely given and purposed object lesson that the Lord was giving to these people. Uh, where is the answer to problems going to come? Uh, they come from the Lord. Uh, that, I say, is the most, uh, the most vivid and the most object lesson uh, that we have. Now, certainly go beyond that uh, and the smiting. Uh, the smiting of the rock, the smiting of Christ as the ultimate means by which that, uh, by which that is uh, going to be fulfilled. That certainly is implied uh, and in picture prophesied uh, in those terms. But the main idea is that the solution comes from God. God never forsakes His people. All right. So the lesson from uh, the lesson here uh, at Rephidim. Uh, is, again, of the absolute faithfulness and dependability of God to meet the needs of His people. Uh, we don't always see it immediately. It doesn't always come. The answer, the resolution, doesn't always come from the anticipated or the expected places. Uh, but God is there, and God is faithful, and God never. Uh, he didn't forsake them uh, at uh, the uh, uh, first time they were thirsty. Uh, there in chapter 15. Didn't forsake them when they were hungry. Uh, didn't forsake them when they were thirsty. Again, you would think, all right, you would think, right, that the, the evidence is mounting so very, uh, so very thoroughly here and so very uh, comprehensively here that Israel would have learned. Why doesn't Israel learn? Why don't they learn the lesson? Uh, and I think the answer to that question uh, really is why don't we learn the lesson? You see, why don't we learn the lesson? It's very easy for us to, again, sit back here uh, with our Bibles open and read about these, uh, about these wicked, sinful Israelites who didn't have the faith to look beyond the moment. Uh, and uh, we, we can be very judgmental, and I don't defend them, but I, I say it doesn't take much besides looking in the mirror uh, to see what they were going through. Uh, and very often it doesn't take nearly, it doesn't take nearly uh, what it took for them uh, to start complaining and start chiding with the Lord. It doesn't take nearly as much for us uh, to, uh, 
uh, if not so boldly, I don't know any of us have been tempted to, you know, throw rocks at Kearns or no. But uh, it, we, we have the some the Canio has. I see them right there. Uh, but uh, so maybe that is a temptation that we won't we won't talk about. Uh, but uh, you know, who who do we blame? We, we blame everybody. All right, and certainly at the at the bottom line is our lack of faith in terms of the Lord. So, dependence. Each of these little pop quizzes then are teaching the people the importance of depending upon God uh, in the uncertainties of life. In the uncertainties of life. Alright, that's that little series. We have one more. I'm looking here at my, my theme uh, that I'm developing here again are these tests that the Lord uh, put Israel through uh, after this uh, great deliverance beginning this life of faith to teach them again how important and how vital it is in this journey of faith uh, to live in dependence upon the Lord. All right, I say we come to the last one. And this begins in chapter 24. Uh, I want to begin at chapter 24. And then we have a little digression uh, in the text before we come to the... uh, answer that Israel uh, gave concerning this particular situation. Let's pick it up at verse oh, 12, I guess. Exodus 24, 12. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me unto the mount, and be there. And I will give thee tables of stone, and a law, and commandments which I have written, that thou mayest teach them. And Moses rose up, and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up, into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us until we come again unto you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man have matters to do, let him come unto them. And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount. And the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up to the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days, forty nights. And following, we have in chapters 25 the instructions that God begins to give Moses concerning the tabernacle, concerning the priesthood, concerning these great types of the gospel itself. But the test, I see at verse 14. Moses says, wait for us here. Here's the test of waiting. The test of waiting. And in many ways, I think the hardest of all the tests that God ever gives His people. The tests of wait, of waiting. Now, we know that Moses was up there 40 days and 40 nights. We know that at verse 18. But when Moses told the people to wait for him, he didn't say, I'm going to be back in 40 days. If Moses said, I'll be back in 40 days, no worry. They'll count off the days and no problem. I expect him to come back in 40 days. Didn't tell them that. 
I don't know that Moses knew that at this point. The Lord says, come here, and you tell the people, just wait. Well, they waited. They waited. Moses is up here getting a bunch of good stuff from the Lord. Look at chapter 32. And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down on the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us gods, we shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up from the land of Egypt, we wot not what has become of him. There's a word that you don't use every day. We wot not. I know what what means? No. Now, you know that what means no uh, because either you have a version in your lap that you shouldn't have today or uh, you just kind of figure it out from the context. huh? Shame, shame. We won't go there. All right. We what not. All right. Not a word that we typically use uh, in, in modern English, but they knew not. All right. It doesn't take uh, a whole lot to figure out what the word means. But try that one on somebody tomorrow. And if they want not, then you say you're a half wit. There you go. Uh, and you can work that out for yourself. All right, so uh, Moses up there said, just wait for me. I'll be back. Just wait for me. But for some reason, the delay of Moses caused the people here now to become frustrated again, not knowing what's going on, impatient, impatient, uh, and, and, and how sad and how tragic uh, this particular uh, thing is. And, and what makes it, ironically, all the more grieving, tragic, is to realize what the people were getting, what the Lord was giving to them, uh, to Moses, through Moses, there in the mount. He's up there in the very presence of God getting that table of stone, the Ten Commandments written by the hand of God to define the sphere of life for these people. Uh, all of the instructions concerning the tabernacle. We saw the beauty of the tabernacle already and the great symbolism and the great uh, gospel presentation that was. This is what the Lord, all the great stuff that God was doing for these people in this waiting time. But they became impatient. Became impatient. They didn't know. Uh, they didn't know what was happening to Moses. And that delay, all right, and I say that delay in many ways, uh, is the uh, greatest test of all. How often do we receive the instructions to wait upon the Lord? We have the promise that those that wait will be renewed in their strength. We have the promise that those that wait uh, upon the Lord will never be ashamed. That is, they'll never be frustrated. They'll never come to disappointment. God never disappoints those that wait upon Him. But the waiting game is a hard game. Uh, we have our desires from the Lord. We have our prayers that we offer unto the Lord, and that's good. And the very fact of our praying is an evidence of that dependence upon the Lord. The more we depend upon God, the more we pray. I think we understand that. 
but very often, uh, very often, uh, the answers to our prayers do not seem to come within the time frame that we have, at least in our own minds, defined as necessary. Lord, I need to know by this time, and the answer doesn't seem to come, and therefore here again becomes all of this, all of this stuff. Well, there are times, obviously, uh, when God answers prayer uh, immediately. Think of the prayer of Elijah. God answered right then. But you think of the prayer uh, of Hezekiah. The Lord made him wait a little while. Think of the prayer of Daniel. Several weeks went by. Uh, you think of those prayers of Israel. Uh, there in Egypt, 400 years they were there before the Lord. Uh, but God's purpose and God's timing is always obviously the best for His people. But it's hard. All right? The waiting game is the hardest game of all. Now waiting, and, and we've talked about this before, and I don't want to give a whole theological or lexical uh, survey of the idea of waiting, but understand that waiting in uh, is one of our words of faith in the Scripture, particularly the Old Testament. Uh, it is not a resignation. Right? Waiting upon the Lord is not resignation. Uh, it is not just throwing our hands back and sitting down and saying, well, I've said my prayer, now whatever happens, happens. Whatever will be, will be. Uh, it's not a resignation. It is a constant expectation. It is an eager anticipation Waiting, while it appears to be a passive word, is a very active word. Uh, it is not involved, I say, with passivity. It's not resignation. Well, I've said my prayer, whatever will happen. No, it's on the edge of our seat, as it were, knowing that God has heard our prayer, knowing that God hears our prayer, knowing that God will not forsake us. And here is this excitement uh, and this eagerness uh, as we... Wait for that. Uh, wait for that answer to come. So we wait for the Lord to do uh, His bidding. Uh, but when that becomes prolonged, here's the tension. Right? Here is this new tension that develops, and we sometimes, then, very often, will take matters into our own hands. And that's what the people did here. Moses delayed. And when the people saw, can you see what they're using here? Again, not without significance. The people saw. They are walking by sight and not by faith. This is when you always fail the test of faith. When you walk by what you see instead of by what you believe. When they saw that Moses delayed, they go to Aaron, said, make us some God. I don't know what's happened to Moses. Uh, now, they had the evidence. Again, let's keep in mind that they had the evidence that the Lord had not forsaken them. When Moses went up, the manna didn't stop. All right? They were still getting the manna. The manna was coming every day. Every day for 40 days when Moses was up in the mount, they were getting the manna. God had not forsaken them. Uh, they had uh, their daily needs being supplied. But what a short memory. What a short memory. Uh, these people had. They didn't see Moses. And because they didn't see Moses, they thought that was the end of things, and so they took matters into their own hands, resulting in idolatry. Resulting in idolatry. They wanted a God they could see. They wanted a God they could see. 
Having a God you can see is always a lot easier than having a God you can't see. All right? That's true. Having a God you can see. Now, they weren't forsaking Jehovah here in the technical or in the absolute sense of the word. But they wanted a Jehovah they could see. They wanted a God they could see as a constant reminder to them that God was near. Well, they had the constant. There was the evidence. There was the manna. There was the faith. They had the plenty. But now uh, they lead to idolatry. Wanted to worship Jehovah, but they wanted to set the terms. They wanted to make up the terms by which they were going to continue this relationship uh, with, uh, with the Lord. Uh, and so, uh, we, we have this idolatry. You, you know the story here. I'm not going to read the entire text, but people say, make us, make us a God. One that we can see. And so, Aaron collected all of this stuff, right? All of the jewelry of the people. And he makes a molten calf, verse 4. And uh, said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Authorized version translates that as a plural here. Some problems. Differing interpretations as to how to take this verse. I'll not get into all of it. Uh, but while that word is grammatically a plural, uh, the term God that you see in the Old Testament for the most part is always plural when we translate it singular. All right? So I, I, I would tend myself here uh, not to translate that as a plural term. Uh, here's your God, O Israel, which brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Here's your God. Now, that's significant. This golden calf represented Jehovah. All right, this was not the God of the Egyptians. This was not some God that they found uh, from other Bedouins there in the desert. No, this was identified as Jehovah himself. That's clear. Uh, this is the God that brought you up from the land of Egypt. There was no question. They know who it was. They knew who it was uh, by name that brought them out of the land of Egypt. So here is a golden calf that represented not some pagan idol, not, not some pagan deity, but here is a calf that they made to represent Jehovah himself. Now, worshiping God in their way, on their terms, was idolatry. Any God, even if you put the right name on that God, any God, even if you put the right name on that God that is the figment and the product of your imagination, is the product, the figment of the work of your hands, is ultimately idolatry. It's ultimately idolatry. Uh, God is a spirit. And those that worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. That's what Christ told. Uh, the Samaritan woman, you remember, in John chapter 4. And that was, not, uh, that was not just some kind of a New Testament progression of truth. Uh, you people have been looking at the second commandment. Tim's been taking you through the commandments. Uh, and the second commandment uh, is in specific statement, what Christ says in general statement, that you worship me in spirit and in truth. Uh, follow the logic there of the commandments. 
the first commandment has made it very clear that you are not to have any other God. So polytheism, if you will, uh, any kind of monolatry, if you will, the worship of one God, but recognizing the existence of other gods, monolatry, uh, that's clearly prohibited in the first commandment. Other gods are prohibited in the first commandment. So when the second commandment comes now and says, now don't make any graven images and whatever else to worship, uh, it's not repeating what was said in commandment number one. Uh, polytheism, monotheism, if I can put it through, has already been established in commandment number one. Commandment number two now is dealing with the means and the manner by which you are to worship that one true and living God. And God says, you worship me spiritually. You worship me spiritually. Uh, you don't use the aids. You don't create these things that are going to be visible aids. Uh, to your worshiping uh, the Lord. Well, this is what we have here. This is a violation of commandment number two. Violation of commandment number two uh, in the erection of this golden calf. But uh, that, that made religion easy. Right? Uh, a religion of sight is always easier than a religion of faith. It's always easier to walk by sight than it is by faith. And here they have it. And that led to the immorality. Look at verse 6. And you can see where one thing just leads to another. Breaking of the second commandment. Idolatry led to the manifestation of the immorality. And they rose up early on the morrow and offered burnt offerings. And brought peace offerings. This is the stuff that God had ordered. Right? And the people sat down to eat and to drink and they rose up to play. And the language there was suggestive of great crimes, if you will, of immorality. It's not just playing parlor games they're talking about here. Immorality. Licentiousness. Now associated with what should have been the legitimate means of their worship. Terrible failure. Terrible failure. Now, how does God come to the people now? People had expressed their impatience with God. And now, if I can put it this way, we see the threat of divine impatience on these people. Verse 7, the Lord tells Moses to go down and find out what's going on. Verse 9, And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people. In the contrast there in verse 1, the people saw something and now the Lord sees something. Verse 9, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt? with great power and with a mighty hand. Threat. 
I say of divine impatience. A divine impatience that was justly merited. These people had corrupted themselves. They had demonstrated over and over again their failures in faith, disobedience unto the Lord. And the accusations that God brings against them are not light accusations. Look at verse 7. They've corrupted themselves. They've acted ruinously. They have brought ruin upon themselves. Verse 8, they have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded. It's a term that describes apostasy. The turning aside. They became stiff-necked, verse 9, stubborn, shameless, insolent people. A people that had well merited the wrath of God. And that wrath was determined. Verse 10. It's not capricious. Make it clear that verse 10 is not whimsical. It's not capricious. Here is a wrath against these people that was rightly earned. And God is controlled. Don't get the picture here of God losing His patience as we think of losing patience and going off on a tantrum, as it were. Controlled. Determined, anger that is just, an anger that is calculated, a righteous display of his wrath against sin. The long suffering of God is a wonderful thing. The long suffering of God is wonderful. It takes God, if we can use the imagery even of the Old Testament, it takes a long time for God's nose to get red. Idea of long suffering, length of nostrils length of nostrils, long-suffering. It takes a long time, as it were, for the heat of God's wrath to be executed. But the Lord says, in verse 10, you just leave me alone. You just leave me alone. My nose is hot. My nose is well red against them. I'm going to consume them. Make of you a great nation. A wrath that was just. I think one of the most amazing passages, at least concerning the life of Moses, we see here. See the intercession of Moses unto the Lord. This is the cure to this sin and to the wrath that God was about to display upon these people. He pleads. Moses took that divine let me alone as a challenge to pray. As a challenge to intercede in behalf of these people. I say we have here in this context one of the most amazing 